After the great flood was used to judge the inhabitants of the earth, Noah and his descendants were given a command to replenish the earth. Unfortunately, it didn't take long before those that began the process once again became prideful and rebellious. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich examines God's response and the warning it holds for us. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Up, Up, and Away, from Genesis chapter 11. Good to be in the Lord's house this morning as we open up his word and see what he has to say to us. So, as I said, we are going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 11, reading verses 1 through 9, 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is of one, and as they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they might have imagined to do. Go, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of the earth, of all the earth. From thence, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne again this morning. We are grateful once again, as always, for your goodness towards us, Lord. We know uh, we are an unworthy people, but yet your love, your generosity, your mercy, your grace continues to pour out upon us. And Lord, we thank you for this chance to open your word, to gather together in your name, to lift your name in praise and worship, and Lord, uh, just help us to prepare our hearts and our minds for the words that you would have us to hear this morning. Help us to take them with us as we leave today. Let them take root in our lives that we might bring forth a bountiful harvest for your glory and honor. And Lord, let us continue to live our lives in accordance with your will and purpose. Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here this morning to present the word that you've laid upon my heart, but I just ask that you take me and use me as your instrument. Take away anything that in any way could interfere with the message, selfishness, pride, distraction, whatever it might be, Lord, take it away. Empty me, make me a vessel filled with your spirit that I might speak only those words that you've given me. And Lord, as a church, help us to continually grow and to continually reach outward to the community around us that we might serve them in your name, to serve them in a manner that is glorifying to you. And let us always be outward seeking and not inwardly focused. And Lord, as individuals, help us to always see opportunities to share your gospel, to share your truth, that this world that's in so desperate need to hear it can be made aware of the truth that only you hold. And Lord, forgive us of our sins, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we're looking at the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, the time period that we're talking about is a time period that is subsequent, is shortly after when the Great Flood occurred. And we all, we all know 
the period of the flood was a time when God flooded the earth uh, because the sin and rebellion of mankind was so rampant. It was out of control. God said, I need to basically reset um, and to pass judgment on the world. In fact, if we look back at the passage where God makes this fateful decision, the Bible describes it in this manner in Genesis 6-5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now what's more, the description was expanded later on in the scriptures to say it was corrupt and filled with violence. Kind of sounds like a time period we might be living in right now, isn't it? So mankind was really in a bad way uh, when it came to the rebellion in, right before the flood. But God chose one man, one man that had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and whose family he was going to use to begin to replenish the earth once he had passed judgment on the earth. Because remember, there would be no living thing survive this uh, great flood um, uh, that breathed there, basically, except that which was on the ark. So we have just a very small group of individuals, small group of people, that would be required to replenish the earth. And this was the task that God had uh, given Noah's family. They would ride out the flood and they would be spared uh, through the ark that God had commanded in the build. And if you, it's interesting because, and this isn't the topic of the, the sermon this morning, but and we could get sidetracked if we're not careful, but think of the ark as a type, a picture of the salvation that God was going to provide years later through His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so Noah's family on the ark spared the, uh, the judgment of God and the, um, the flood so that they would live. But something interesting happened. Once the flood was done, once the flood receded, remember God had tasked them to replenish the earth, to, to go to all parts of the world. Not long after the Lord opened the door to the ark, and let Noah's family once again set foot on solid ground. The Bible tells us they went from the east. If you look at our verses, it says they went from the east. Now, this is an interesting statement. If we're not careful, we can kind of blow over it and not really pay it much attention. But if we look at the patterns and the words that are commonly used in Scripture, um, we see that this actually has a significant meaning to it. The mention that they moved from the east indicates a problem. Because in Genesis, east or from the east always indicates a movement from God. Movement away from God. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, their entry at the east of the garden was the guarded by cherubim. When Lot left Abraham, he traveled eastward where he ran into trouble at Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Jacob fled his homeland, he went to the land of the people in the east. So this typically is a picture of movement away from God. Which is what we see happened when they left the ark. So the description of the people's movement here was indicative of a group rebellion, effectively, against God. Their movement eastward was united direction and being of one language, which translated directly means one lip, actually. It's amazing how when a group is convinced to think alike, how quickly they can be moved away from that which is right and proper. 
I want you to put that for a moment in today's context. All right? When a group is convinced to think similarly or forced to think similarly, it is very easy for that group to begin to shun, to move away from that which is right and proper. And we see this happening in today's society, a forced groupthink that moves away from God, that moves away from that which we know is right. So it comes as no surprise then that their first recorded actions as a people in their new settlement, you, and, and you would think this, this story would, be, uh, would, would, would record one that was, these people were saved from the flood, they did everything according with God's purposes and God's will, and God's will was fulfilled in the land. But instead, even after the judgment, we see the human nature rear its ugly head, and we see rebellion in its ugliest form. So to understand, let's focus for a minute on the phrase that they were speaking once they gathered together afterwards. They said, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. Now what is the problem with that statement? They were using it as something they didn't want to happen. And yet what did God command them to do? To replenish the earth. In other words, God was telling them they need to fulfill their commands and spread about and gather or not be gathered in one place. So the people of the New Start purpose themselves to go directly against God's commands at this point. They made a decision to defy what God had told them to do. Remember, let's go back and take a look at what was said here. He gave, God gave Noah and his family very specific instructions coming out of the flood. So if we look back at chapter 9, verse 1, he says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply and what? Replenish the earth. Now while on the surface that might be difficult to see how this indicates an act of disobedience on the people's part, consider that phrase at the end, and replenish the earth. They desired to stay in one location. In fact, they indicated a desire to prevent them themselves from scattering abroad on the face of the earth. So by their unwillingness to move, their unwillingness to spread out, they were acting in direct disobedience to God's command. Now, so this sets the stage now for the actions of the people that, of, that we read about this morning and their subsequent reactions from the Lord that we're going to take a look at today. And the first thing that we learn from this text that we read this morning is that rebellion is always inwardly focused. Rebellion is always inwardly focused, always focused on ourselves. Now the people's focus once they, uh, they came together in this mind, this group think, was very interesting. Let's look again what they said. They said, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. All right, now to understand this, let's kind of break it down. Let's take this statement apart in pieces. The first thing we notice is that they were going to accomplish a great feat. They were going to do something to make a name for themselves, right? They were going to build a great city, a, a tower that was unmatched. 
by any in history of mankind. One that they thought would reach even to the very dwelling place of God himself. And you thought digging a hole to China as a kid was a feat. Hmm? But consider what this tower represented. Think about what it truly represented here. It represented a statement, a permanent representation of their declaration to defy God and to not spread out among the earth as they were told. What's more is think of the fact that they want to elevate themselves to God's level. Now think back in the history of mankind, even before mankind I should say, think of somebody else who wanted to elevate himself to God's level and above. Lucifer. Satan himself. So where do you think the core of this kind of thinking comes from? It's an evil thought. We do not have any right to try to elevate ourselves, let alone to God's level. This sounds pretty bold when you think about it. It's a pretty bold statement for them to make, but isn't that exactly what so many people and organizations are doing today? They're cleansing the public spaces and schools of any hint of any cross or reference to God or His Word. These are modern day rebels that are doing the very same thing. They're saying to God, it doesn't matter what you say, God. It matters that we have things our way. We do it our way. They don't build towers. No, today they build institutions. Gathering places that are intentionally devoid of God. Like taking Ten Commandments away from the places of judgment when the Ten Commandments are the very core of the rules for judgment. They make their godless displays of worldliness with their tower. But it morphs even beyond that. In a brazen moment of self-edification, they not only boasted of building a tower, but one that would put them, as I said, at the same level of God. They declared that they would become famous for it even. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's put ourselves right up there with the Almighty. Think of the sheer audacity of saying that. And they'd actually take pride in the fact that they were going to defy the one true God. But once again, we need, don't need to look very far today in order to see the very same thing. Now while I know it's not exclusive, entirely exclusive to them, a lot of the younger generation seems to create, uh, take great delight in defying authority. And there's no greater authority than the Lord Himself. If you look at the trends, you look at the polls, you look at the surveys that they're taking today, it is a startling truth that the younger generations are rejecting God at a much greater percentage than they had before. Whereas we've seen the majority of youth have some sort of connection to religion or to God. We're seeing a startling change in that, in that now they become a minority if they have that connection. 
and the trend is continuing. It's not getting any better and it's not leveling off. In, in fact, it's accelerating. In fact, a lot of the young adults we see nowadays reject any affiliation with any organi organized religion. They feel that their own spirituality is sufficient when in fact the scriptures teach quite different. Now, I don't think it was by chance that the tower these people purposed to build was something called the ziggurat, which was a, it's a lofty, massive brick structure with multi-stage, uh, like a giant porch that kind of stepped upward. The tower likely became a model for the sacred temples in the tower of, towers of Mesopotamia. And these were centers for priests and priestesses who glorified immorality and lewd practices in the name of religion. And they thought a lot of themselves for building such a thing. But God warns us of something. God warned us through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 9.23 Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Jeremiah is warning us, don't think that you're something outside of God. But then the kicker is what they thought would happen as a result of their building this tower and becoming quite prominent. They stated that by doing so, they could prevent being forced to do what God had instructed them specifically to do, to go throughout the earth and repopulate it. Now I want you to think for, for a second here what they were saying. They were saying that they were going to do something so magnificent, so grand, that they would be at God's level or maybe even above. And that in doing so, they would no longer have to do what he said or be subject to his judgment. In other words, if we in our own minds decide that we are so impressive, so good, that we are gods in and of ourselves and we no longer have to consider the wrath of God's judgment and in fact, we determine our own fate. This is their thinking. Once again, let's parallel that with a mindset we see today. If I shut God out of my life altogether, I rid any possible exposure to God's word, to God's judgment, to any reference to God, then I get to decide how I live my life and I get to decide what is going to make me a good or bad person. We don't see that today, do we? That's exactly what we see today. They want God out of everything so that they can be their own gods. They can make their own judgments. They can decide what is good and bad for themselves. So this is not unique to the time. That's pretty shocking when you think about it. But once again, what was going on yet that day is true and very much so today. People today decide that the very Word of God is no longer authoritative. And we see this scaringly even within churches, even within Christian lives. They will segregate parts of the Bible saying, I believe in this part, I will follow this part, but you know what? This part over here I don't necessarily agree with, so I'm going to discount it. Folks, let me explain something to you. Either the Bible is the Word of God in its totality, or it is not. 
We cannot take pieces out of it and say this applies and this does not. It's either the Word of God or it's not. And we've got to remember that. We can't part and parcel obey pieces of it. We accept it as a whole. But they want to reject it, saying that they want to be rulers and masters of their own fate. And they want to have the authority to decide what is right and wrong, casting aside any divine influence and sacrificing it on the altar of modernism and progressive theology. Secondly, thing, the second thing we learned from our passages this morning is that our rebellion is not going to ever stop God's plan. Alright? The people really thought a lot of themselves and they purposed to do and at least had begun trying to accomplish through the building of their city and a tower, perhaps believing that they had somehow stoically showed God that he, who was boss in this rebellion. We're going to show God, we're going to do it our way. But God then responds. And he responds with something that might seem puzzling at first until we dig into it a little bit. God makes a statement. He says, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now we read this, and on the surface it may sound like God is kind of afraid of what they're doing. Afraid that the people have accomplished this. So there's no telling how powerful they may become. But I can assure you that God was not feeling threatened in any way. God is not intimidated by our bold rebellion. What was meant by that statement was effectively this. The people have done all this, and if they're left to themselves, there's no telling how evil they might become. You see, God recognized man's propensity for evil. And it was acknowledging that if he let it go, if he left it unchecked, it would become worse and worse. Now that's true of us. If God doesn't put stops and warnings and chastisement in our lives, our rebellion, our evil becomes worse and worse. Sin and rebellion have a way of doing this if not dealt with. It'll continue to grow and morph into something worse over time. That's why when somebody does something that seems so trivial as like skipping church in reality, it's not trivial. It's the first step into more and more. Every time we distance ourselves from God in some way, through some form of disobedience, the next step becomes that much easier. It's like, you go this far, well, it's easier then to take the next step. It's like, if I want to walk from here to this wall, I take one step towards the wall, it's easier to get there, isn't it? This is what Paul reminds us in Romans. That keeping our focus on the things of God is an ongoing battle. Continuous. And that our minds must be continually renewed to prevent slipping back into our fleshly thinking and thus allowing sin to take hold in us. So God understood. God knew that the people needed to be stopped if he was going to stop any further decline. But it's his next statement that really kind of puts things in perspective here. He says, let us go down. Let us go down in reference to the heights they have achieved. If you're not careful, you could miss the humor in that statement. 
Yes, I believe God has a sense of humor, and we see it in places in Scripture. This grand and wonderful tower that the people had built to reach into heaven and put themselves at God's level, right up there at God's level, God says, let's go down. <laughs> like, yeah, see that little thing they made down there? Yeah. Not a big deal. You can see, almost see God leaning over and squinting, trying to see the people in their exalted state, right? And then he does something that we will see repeated time and time again throughout Scripture. He takes a bad situation. He takes man's fleshly blunders, Satan's best efforts, and he turns them around to accomplish his purposes. This kind of action was well summarized by Joseph when he was speaking to his brothers in Genesis 50-20, where he says, But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. We all remember Joseph and the story of Joseph and how his brothers conspired to evil to do him evil, and then ultimately it ended up being the saving grace for his brothers in the long term during a time of famine. We look at Paul and Silas and the agreement, disagreement they had over taking Mark on their missionary journey. They were heading off onto a missionary journey and and Paul didn't want to take si or, uh, Mark because he had bailed on him before. And Silas was like, no, we, we need to take him. And ultimately what happened? Instead of one missionary journey, now we have two missionary journeys. So God accomplished twice as much from what it was originally meant for evil. God's kind of awesome like that, you know that? And in this case, the people needed to be judged for their actions. God needed for the people to scatter and populate the earths. So how would he accomplish that? By taking the thing they valued most away. The thing that they had leveraged to disobey God. Their unity and their oneness. So God takes that. His judgment is exacted. And hopefully the people learn a valuable lesson and they scatter to replenish the earth just as he had originally intended in the first place. Now by creating different groupings of people, there would likely be some conflicts between them down the road. Certainly, because human nature, obviously. But scattering with accompanying conflicts that are bound to result with sinful man, it's better than a unified apostasy. You see, God's will will be accomplished if not with man's obedience, then in spite of man's obedience. God's will will find, he will find a way to accomplish his will. Whether we want to be a part of it or not. And the last thing we take away from our verses this morning is that every action and decision will be judged. This is something we can't ever forget. People may ignore God's word or his plan at their peril. But understand something, that doesn't change the fact that he is in control. He is still sovereign. It may seem at times that God has kind of overlooked or let slide some act of rebellion that we have accomplished in our lives or others. But understand, while God is long-suffering and merciful, the time will come where he said enough is enough. And we will feel his chastising hand. No act of rebellion will ever go undealt with. 
Galatians 6-7 tells us, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I love this verse because it is very blunt. It's, almost, it's effectively saying, make no mistake about it, you're not going to fool God. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. And your actions are going to have consequences. We would do well to remember that. If no one knows, I'll be just fine, we think. Or maybe, well, it looks like I got away with it this time. Nothing seems to have happened. We can't lose sight of the spiritual side of that. Yes, other people might not be aware of the sin in our lives. But someone does know. And no, you haven't gotten away with it. We have a holy, omniscient God who sees everything. And so many in our world today are going through life with the monster under my bed attitude. What do I mean by that? Well, you remember when you were little and you thought there were monsters under your bed? And your means of protection was to close your eyes because you said, if I can't see them, they can't hurt me. A lot of people live their life like that about God. If I ignore God, then I, He has no has say in my life. He has no influence on my life. He can't judge me for what I am and who I am or what I do. But be warned. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. You see, we all have an appointment. And it's an appointment that we've got to be honest with ourselves at some point in our life. And that is that we are going to die. If we're not a part of the rapture, we are going to face death someday. Each and every one of us. Some sooner, some later. And your age doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. Some will leave this earth sooner than expected. Some will live, leave earth at a ripe old age. But it may be sure of one thing. You are going to leave this earth at some point in time. You know, it's selfish and prideful to think that we can rise above the truth of God's existence and the coming judgment that is a part of His existence. You see, the underlying theme of this whole set of verses here is pride. When you think about it, pride, while it's a sin in and of itself, obviously, really is at the core of every sin. We sin, sin because we seek to fulfill desire some way outside of God. In other words, we think we can satisfy ourselves better through what we want than what God can satisfy us in our life. We sin because we set our own path. In other words, we know a better course for our life than the very creator and sustainer of the one who keeps us breathing every single moment. We sin because we place the value of ourselves higher than the value of others. In other words, while God is no respecter of persons, we assume we have the right to be so. That's why racism is a sin. 
We're saying one person is better than another. And God says, I don't see it that way. We look down on others whose sin we deem to be worse than ours. In other words, we assume the right to judge only when God, as the righteous judge, has the authority to determine the weight of sin's judgment. And even the one unforgivable sin is probably the ultimate demonstration of pride. The one unforgivable sin is rejection of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And that is prideful because that's saying, I don't need Jesus. I can do it on my own. I can be a good enough person on my own to be acceptable to God. Now, I can't think of a more prideful thought than that. When we know that we sin every single day in some way, shape, or form. You see, those who stand in unbelief have convinced themselves that they are good enough to pass through God's judgment by their own merits, by their good deeds. They see themselves as good and righteous enough to stand before a pure, spotless, almighty, righteous God. Holy beyond our imagination. Beyond our concept to grasp. And proclaim to Him that I've lived a good life. Although riddled with sin and rebellion. Folks, I can't think of a more prideful, self-serving, and unfortunately for them, damning line of thinking than that. Make no mistake about it, and please don't brush this aside. The Bible is clear that no one in and of themselves is acceptable to God. And in that day of judgment, many will unfortunately find that out the hard way. Any confidence you place in your good deeds or the balance of your lifelong actions, doing good, good to bad, is utter foolishness. And it's sorely misplaced. And I don't say this to you to be demeaning in any way. But in the hopes that if you have found yourself thinking along these lines, you recognize that even one sin, one thing wrong, one thing in rebellion or contrary to the, to the will and the Word of God, is, makes you incapable of measuring up. Makes you unacceptable to be in the presence of God. And that be you, that could be me, that is any one of us. But praise God, He didn't see to leave it that way. See, God knew we, we were going to be a bunch of hard-headed, rebellious people. So He made a way. He made a path for us to find reconciliation to Him. He didn't want to leave us in our lost state. And in Romans 5, 5.8 it says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss this, folks. There's a God in heaven who loves you so much, with such an intensity, with such an overwhelming passion, that He was sinned his son, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we could not, <clears throat> and pay the price 
that we were incapable of. And as the verse in Romans said, He didn't do it because of who you are. He didn't do it because you somehow deserved redemption. He did it because of who He is. That His name might be praised among all the nations. That He might be glorified in the new life that you receive when you accept Him as Lord and Savior. So I ask you today, can you find it in yourself to step away from your own pride? To take a step back and take a look and say, am I living life by my own standards? Or can we step into a new life through Jesus Christ? Understanding our unacceptable nature before God. Understanding that we cannot do anything to reconcile ourselves to God. That God sent His Son. That God calls us to Him. That we might be saved. And it's not a hard process. It's not complicated. It's so simple even a child can understand it. If we'll simply confess our sins before God. Understand that we have sinned against Him. We've offended Him. We have made ourselves unholy, unacceptable. And that Jesus Christ came to this world, went to the cross, took on the sins of the entire world, suffered the full wrath of God, rose again three days later in victory over sin, death, and hell. If you will believe in that in your heart, not in your head, in your heart, and truly embrace that, then you can be saved. You can look forward to whenever that time comes that the Lord taps you on the shoulder and said, it's time to go that you can look forward to a reunion in heaven like, unlike anything you've ever imagined. Don't you want that? Why not make it so today? Let's stand as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne, we are so grateful, Lord, for your long-suffering, your mercy, your grace. Lord, we give you so many reasons to turn away from us. We give you so many reasons to abandon us, to let us wallow in our damnation, in our eternal uh, condemnation. We give you so many reasons to do that, yet your love flows towards us. As your word says, while we were yet sinners, despite our rebellion, despite our turning away from you on so many occasions, despite desperately clinging to trying to do things our own way. Despite that, while we were yet sinners, your Son died for us. Help us to grab hold of that truth today, Lord. Help us to understand the magnitude, the gravity of what it took to make that happen. That we might fall on our faces before you. Call upon your Son and accept Him as our Lord and Savior. Lord, just have your will and way in all the lives that are here today. Burden the hearts of all of us that the Holy Spirit might convict us of whatever it is that might be separating us from you, that our walk with you might be hand in hand, step by step, that our wills, our lives might be glorifying to you, and that your name would be exalted in all of it. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space Hyphen Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.